Hello, and welcome to episode 83 of Killer Hangover. I'm Bettina. And I'm Beth. And I'm so excited about this episode. Wow, do we have an episode for you. Oh boy. Yeah, very, very interesting. To say the least. We do not have a paranormal because this episode is going to take us well past an hour. (laughs) Yes, this is probably going to be one of our longer episodes, but like we'd mentioned, we're going to be taking a two-month hiatus for baby. You can prolong this episode, pause it, go a couple days, listen to us. You're going to miss us. (laughs) You're so going to miss us. You're going to miss us. So if you just, like we've said before, if you're going to just die without us and those paranormal stories and those laughs, make sure that you join us on our Patreon This is going to be our last real Monday episode until November 1st. So join us on Patreon. The link is going to be in the description of this episode. It's on our website. You can email us and ask us for the link. But we're going to have episodes there. We'll have paranormal silly ones. We'll have check-ins with you guys. But this is going to be the last Monday episode for a while. And it's a doozy. It's a doozy. (laughs) Watch that last step. It's a doozy. Watch that last episode. It's a doozy. Those that don't know the reference. Groundhog Day. Get out of here. Why don't you start this off by, we're going to start off by introducing the characters. So Yeah, we're just going to jump right in. Mom's drinking sparkling. She's drinking by herself. It's the last time drinking by herself and... She had an option to drink whatever she wanted because we're not doing a paranormal. So what do you think she surprise, chose? Surprise, surprise, surprise. She's over there drinking her sparkling. I have this lovely glass of water. And we are going to be covering this case together. <sighs> yep. All, All right. right. The person that I am going to introduce you to is a man named Scott Peterson. Oh, are bells going off yet? <laughs> ding, ding, ding. <laughs> so... Y'all know this case. We all know this name. But do you know this case? There are so many details from this trial and this case that mom and I were calling each other like, did you see this? Did you know that? (laughs) It's crazy. So you may think you know the story, but hold on. Listen to this episode because we have a lot of information for you. All right. So Scott Peterson, who was he? He was born on October 24th, 1972 in San Diego, California. His parents, Lee and Jacqueline, she went by Jackie, had a very yours, mine, and ours situation uh, with six kids. And Scott was the couple's only child together. Oh. The family, I'm sure they had their issues, but watching them as adults now, they're all huggers. (laughs) I mean, they're (laughs) all very close. Uh, Lee owned a crate packaging company and Jackie owned her own little boutique called the Put On. (laughs) Scott really bonded with his father over the game of golf. Scott really wanted to be a professional golfer one day. By the age of 14, he could beat his dad. Oh. In 1990, he got a partial golf scholarship at Arizona State University. Now, it seems there was some butting of the heads and some chest-pounding competitiveness Mm. between Scott and another golfer on his team. I'm not exactly sure. I couldn't find a reliable resource on that. But Scott eventually transferred to, and I'm probably mispronouncing this, but Cuesta College, C-U-E-S-T-A in San Luis Obispo. 
Senulis obispo. Yeah. Did I say that right? <laughs> Something like that. <laughs> oh, boy. And then later, he ends up transferring to California Polytechnic State University. He's still pursuing golf with this, and he's working on a degree in agricultural business. His professors loved him. He was a model student. One professor even stated, quote, I wouldn't mind having a class full of Scott Petersons, mm-hmm. unquote. While attending California Polytech, Scott worked at a local restaurant called the Pacific Cafe. And from here, mom is going to introduce to you another character, <laughs> which you all probably have already guessed is Lacey. Lacey Denise Roca was born May 4th, 1975. Her mother, Sharon, and father, Dennis, owned a dairy farm in Escadon. Escate. Escadon. Wow, we're really doing well with this episode, mom. <laughs> E-S-C-A-T-O-N. <laughs> a dairy farm in Escaden, California. Lacey and her older brother, Brent, worked on the farm from a very young age. Even after their parents' divorce, the children would spend weekends on the farm helping their father. After the divorce, Sharon moved with the two children to Modesto, California, where she eventually married Ron Gransky, who Lacey looked at as her second father. They got along very well. Lacey was a good student and a cheerleader in junior high and high school. She always enjoyed gardening, so she majored in ornamental horticulture when she attended California Polytech State University. While in college, Lacey would often visit a friend in Morro Bay who worked at ta-da, Pacific Cafe. Also working at the restaurant was a very handsome young man, Scott Peterson. And it was the summer of 1994 that Lacey made the first move. Yes, she did did the first move. She wrote her phone number on a piece of paper and slid it over to Scott. (laughs) According to her mother, it was shortly after meeting Scott that Lacey told her that she had met the man she was going to marry. Have you gone out with him yet? Asked her mother. No, not yet, but we will. (laughs) Oh. Oh, wow. And she was right. Scott eventually called her. Their first date was a deep sea deep fishing, sea fishing trip, trip on which Lacey Whoa. got terribly seasick. As I would have. Oh, man. Seasick or not, Lacey made a big impression on Scott and the two started dating, falling very much in love with one another. And after dating for two years, the couple married on August 9th, 1997. In June 1998, Scott graduated with a B.S. in agricultural business. Their first endeavor as a couple was to not to grow any horticultural things or agriculture. (laughs) I know. I thought this was so funny. They opened The Shack, a sports bar in San Luis Obispo. They did fairly well, actually, Mm -hmm. as restaurant bar owners. But after two years, they sold the business and moved to Modesto to be closer to Lacey's family. In October 2000, they bought a three-bedroom bungalow at 523 Covina Avenue. This is a short glimpse into the life events of Lacey. Now, let me describe Lacey a little bit. According to her family, she had a brilliant smile, which produced dimples on either side of her smile. And her smile is evident in most pictures that you see. Even as a baby, her mother said Lacey was very easygoing and would always wake up with a smile on her face. Wherever she went, Lacey was a blend of, quote, confidence, sincerity, loudness, and <laughs> charm. 
<laughs> Her friend from school, Renee Tomlinson, described Lacey as, quote, always perky, bubbly, energetic, and chatty. <laughs> After the couple moved into their house in Modesto, they started entertaining friends and family. This was something that Lacey loved to do mm-hmm. and was very good at. She enjoyed watching cooking shows, especially the Martha Stewart show, and would make several of the meals and desserts she saw in these shows. Her friends stated that she was never in the kitchen when they were invited over for a meal or get-togethers. She always had everything prepared ahead of time. Okay, to me, that is a total gift because you can ask any of our friends. I am always (laughs) ringing the doorbell and I'm always still in the kitchen finishing something up. I'm definitely not that organized. I know, Beth, you are. (laughs) I am. Well, I have like a timeline of like what you go and where. She has it all like, written out. Mm-mm, not me. I'm but I'll tell now. you what, at this late in life, I own it. Okay. <laughs> I, I won't lie. I tell myself every single time. Okay. You know, they're coming at this time. You're going to have everything ready by the time they come. So all they have to do is just serve it. Everything's going to be. Nope. Never happens. <laughs> no. So I really admire people like Lacey and Beth. <laughs> Thanks. Lacey's big smile was very evident the day in summer of 2002 that she told her family that she and Scott were going to have a baby. Mm. Due February 10th, 2003, Lacey was very excited about the baby. And after her and Scott found out the baby was a boy, they chose the name Connor. Lacey decorated the nursery in a nautical theme. And I have to add here that Scott was very much involved in this also. Scott was very Very involved, yes. It it actually had an actual like life preserver ring. Yes. That hung on the wall by the crib Mm -hmm. that says, welcome aboard. Yeah, it was really precious. So cute. Lacey was a cute, happy, pregnant woman. I mean, that's (laughs) how I just saw her. She was, yeah. Which was captured in pictures of her during her pregnancy, always with the smile and the dimples. Mm -hmm. I just, type of person I really would have liked to get to know. All right, so that's Lacey. So before we go any further, now you know the two characters. The backstory. The two main characters and their backstory. Mom and I have a kind of a little different stance on this case. And we are covering the story together. We did our research separately. So we're going to have some discussion. We're going to have some disagreeing, probably. (laughs) But going into this, I'm going to throw it out there. I think Scott's innocent. And going into this, I will throw this out there. Initially, when I heard about the case and initially, I thought he was totally guilty. Mm -hmm. Totally guilty. Now that we've spent this time investigating time. <laughs> um, and researching truth be told I don't know I don't know I'm not swayed to the dark side your side the dark yet side. oh <laughs> thanks mom but <laughs> I am not totally convinced that he's guilty either so leave it at that and let's... so there will be some discussing I'm going to pull you to the dark side by the end of this mom <laughs> okay so th- I'm going to start with the timeline of events for mm-hmm. the day before we do just kind of a little more backstory scott he was working with a european fertilizer company at the time in modesto california they were trying to expand to the united states i believe the company was and he was selling irrigation systems fertilizer chemical nutrients and related projects to big farms and flower growers in the california area mostly but as well as in arizona and new mexico so he was kind of running the whole thing And Lacey was a substitute teacher. 
Correct. They were not rolling in the dough. Definitely not. He was, I, I, from the math they gave me, it looks like he was making around sixty to 70000 a year. Mm. I think closer to the 60000 a year. So, But he was a very hard worker. I mean, even when they owned the shack, the restaurant, mm-hmm. uh, I'm sorry, the bar, they needed to get like a vent put in and they couldn't find a technician to That's do right. it. So he went to school he and he learned how to get his license to, to go do to, that. Yeah. So he was a very hard worker. Let's go to the timeline. The date of everything was on December 24th, so Christmas Eve 2002. But I'm going to start the day before that. Okay. December 23rd, 2002. Scott and Lacey seem to have a pretty normal day. They actually went to Lacey's sister's salon and Scott got a haircut. They invite the sister over for dinner that night, but she already had plans, so the couple just went home. They had dinner on their own. Their cell phone records show that Lacey called her mom around 8.30 that night to confirm plans for Christmas Eve dinner the next evening with her family. They chat a bit. Lacey and Scott lay in bed and watch a movie until they fall asleep around 10.30 or so. Now this is the day, Christmas Eve. And obviously the only account is from Scott, but things were checked and analyzed to credit his story, like mm-hmm. cell phone records, laptop records, receipts and all that. And you'll find it's not only Scott. There's other people turning these things in also. Exactly. So, okay, timeline. Lacey gets up around 7 or 7.30 and she ate breakfast right away. She had to eat right away because she was pregnant or mm-hmm. else and she would get sick if she didn't eat right away. Scott slept in a little later getting up around 8, 8.30. When he gets up, he and Lacey chat about their day, and Lacey lists the things that she wants to get done. She wants to mop the kitchen. (laughs) This is where she sounds a lot like me, because it's like, it's Christmas Eve, Beth. Like, why would you want to? I I get it. She wants to mop the kitchen. She wants to take the dog, Mackenzie, for a walk, and she wants to go to the grocery store for the ingredients she needs for the French toast Christmas casserole she was making for her family's get-together that evening. I also read that she wanted to make gingerbread cookies. Oh, That was a full morning. That is a really full morning. <laughs> and actually the proof of the fact that she wanted to make that casserole, the recipe was found on the kitchen counter by police when they did investigate. Mm-hmm. Around 9 or 10, the couple is watching Martha Stewart. Like mom said, that was one of her favorite shows. And now I don't know if it was Martha Stewart on Good Morning America, if it was like her segment, or if it was a Martha Stewart show. I couldn't find, but it said from 9 to 10, they were watching Martha Stewart. So that sounds like it's a Martha Stewart show. It's an hour. I don't think she had a whole hour segment on Good Morning America. (laughs) But I'm dwelling on unimportant information here. Just know that at some point between 9 and 10, the couple watched Martha Stewart. Mm-hmm. Lacey mopped the floor and planned on taking the couple's dog, Mackenzie, out on a walk. Scott was going to go golfing. Okay. It's Christmas Eve. He's going to go golfing. Now, we've learned that he loves golf. As you, he had a scholarship for golf. That was kind of his life was golf. So that doesn't seem weird. But last minute, he decides it's too cold to go golfing. So he wants to go out on his boat. Isn't it colder on the water? <laughs> That's what I think. Oh. I'm going to prove he's innocent, but I'm just saying it is <laughs> really some weird. some weird things. I'm sorry. It was there a weird, some weird choice. Things. Now, he, he, it was a new boat. It was a newer boat. I don't, I can't tell you exactly how new, but I think it was only like a month, maybe two months. Yeah, new. it was new. I don't know. Had he even brought, gotten it out yet? Maybe a couple times. Okay. But it was new. And then the whole nautical theme in Connor's room, like it's, this was his new thing. No thing. <laughs> 
So maybe that's could justify why he wanted to go fishing on Christmas Eve. Christmas Eve day. Yeah. But where he went, this is where I get this. We'll, we'll get there. We'll get there. So he decides last minute he's going to go fishing instead. Mm-hmm. And so as she's mopping, he is loading up his truck with all of his fishing necessities. He starts to head to his warehouse. Now, they call it a warehouse, but it's, but it's kind of like a storage unit type thing. It is, but he works out of it. Because, yeah, and he works out of it. He has his work computer in there, and it was a place for him to keep his tools. It was kind of like mm-hmm. a work shed. But he also stored the boat and there. And he stored the boat mm-hmm. there. The warehouse is about three miles from his house, so it takes about nine minutes of a drive okay. to get there. Scott claims to have gotten there around 1030. He read a couple emails. He sent a Christmas greeting email to his boss and then looked online for directions and information on a new woodworking tool he had just ordered. And according to police investigation, he was on the computer from 1030 to 1056. Now, something to note here. After his computer time and the time he goes to the marina with his boat, which was like a two-hour drive. It was, yes. From his warehouse to the marina. Mm -hmm. But before he takes that drive, there is a 20-minute hole that's unaccounted for in the investigation. Now, of course, these 20 minutes is going to be used by prosecution to say he was preparing a body. But I will mention that that new woodworking tool was fully assembled when police investigate the warehouse so later must on. have put it together sometime that I don't morning. S- yeah, he went there, he emailed, and he looked up the instructions for this woodworking tool. The man put the woodworking tool together. I think that would take about kind 20 minutes. No-brainer, yeah. So I don't know why they dwell on it, but anyway, that's just my opinion. Back at the house prior to this warehouse time, so shortly after Scott left, around 1018, Karen, and I don't mean that in the term Karen, but her name it's was really Karen. Karen. She sees Mackenzie, the Peterson's dog, wandering the front yard with his leash on. She looks around. She doesn't see Lacey or Scott. So she takes Mackenzie and puts him in the backyard, closing the gate behind her. Let me add here, that was not an unusual thing. Exactly. Because they usually had her running around and sometimes she did have her leash on when they did gardening yep. or when they were hanging out. So mm-hmm. it was not unusual to see Mackenzie hanging out in the front yard with his leash on. Yes. And even though the dog's name was Mackenzie, it was a it male was- dog. <laughs> Which we had, mom and I had a discussion about that. Was it a boy dog? Was it a girl dog? I don't know if I should, whatever. Anyway, McKinsey was a really good looking dog too. It was like a golden retriever mix. Mix, It was a big dog. Mostly golden retriever. Yeah. So cute. Super cute. Now let's throw another thing in here for y'all. Another little crime. On this 24th day of December, 2002, another neighbor of the Petersons was driving down the road when they noticed a suspicious white van with three men. Now, I have to mention, in the documentary that Mom and I watched from A&E, the neighbor gives the description in the episode, and the police paperwork gives the description of these three men as three not black, but dark-skinned men. Right. With a white van outside the neighbor's house. Mm -hmm. They kind of give her like a smug look when she drives by kind of mean mugger as she drives by and and mom mentioned this to me when we were discussing this these men could not have been the smartest they had to be as stupid (laughs) as stupid could be i mean you choose to burger burgerize yeah there's that word a house during the day the day before christmas when a lot of people are at home yeah during the day the day 
And we got this white van. It's a it's a it's a very nice community. It's so, a nice neighborhood. Yeah. So people watch out for each other. And yes. you've got these idiots that are doing this right during the day. Now we mentioned this robbery because it does all come together. And I honestly don't think there is such a thing as coincidences when it comes to crime. I mean, you have these men robbing a house right across the street where Lacey Peterson goes missing from on the same day. The woman does not report the sighting of the robbery until days later. So apparently she was talking to a neighbor after Christmas. Um, I think even closer to the new year, the neighbor said, oh, you know, so-and-so's house was robbed when they were gone for their Christmas break. And this neighbor was like, oh, my gosh, I saw a white van there on the 24th. I need to go tell police. So she walked right outside her door (laughs) and there were police. And there were police because at that point, everybody's looking for Lacey's. We'll cover a little bit more of this later, but just keep this in mind. Yeah. Keep in mind that they were there. Back over with Scott. He arrives at the Berkeley Marina at 11.59. Again, we know this is fact because he actually has a receipt from the automated ticket thingy there where he gets his fishing permit for the day. He backs his boat into the water, parks his truck, gets in his boat, and heads out to the open water. A few people do see him there. They aren't witnesses per se. They were not brought into trial or anything. But I just wanted to make note of that. So he takes his boat And let me just describe the boat. It's a 14-foot little fishing boat. It's nothing fancy. It's not some big old thing. It's a little fishing boat. Right. He takes the boat out on the water, opens her up, lets it go fast for a little while, and then he goes straight to the shallow water for fishing. So he's out there enjoying his Christmas Eve fishing outing by himself. (laughs) Sorry, it is weird. (laughs) I, I don't know. Having kids now, we're constantly doing Christmas activities from the moment we wake up to the moment we go to sleep. I just think leaving your very but she's pregnant very pregnant. Wouldn't they want? Wouldn't he want to make gingerbread cookies with her? With her or something? But leaving okay, two hours to drive there, two hours to drive back. That's four hours right there, and let's say two hours on the water. Yeah, that's six hours on Christmas Eve day. I I don't know. But you know. can also see she's very organized. She's busy. She probably said, just get out of my hair get out of my and hair. go do something. Yeah, he was going to go golfing anyway. So get out of here. If she's as organized as she is, I mean, I kick Alex out all the time. <laughs> Love you, honey. So he's out there fishing and he looks at his watch and he's surprised how late it is. It's around two and he needs to be getting back. He packs up and he heads back to the marina. As he's leaving the marina, he calls Lacey at home and he leaves her a voicemail. And it's like the hey, beautiful call. Some people think that this phone call is really gummed up. It's just super lovey-dovey. So it's I set. don't I don't think that. I think it sounds, he's like, hey, beautiful. I'm just checking in. It's around 2.15. I'm leaving the marina. I'm not going to have time to pick up that basket for Papa. I'm hoping you get this message in time so you can go pick it up. That's basically what the message says. Mm-hmm. He gets to the warehouse, parks the boat, then he stops and he gets gas on his way home. And he calls Lacey, which will be his third time. May I add here, he did not get a receipt from the gas station. Okay, why are y'all dwelling on this? The prosecution dwelled on this too. I'm just adding there, he has a receipt from the parking. Well, he's got that and that's time stamped. But no, I'm not, I'm not, I'm just pointing out that he did not get a receipt for gas in case somebody wants to say, well, didn't he have a receipt for that? Oh, I thought you were, okay. Well, no, I'm not making a big deal about it. I know well, the prosecution, prosecution made a big did. deal about it. It's they were like, like you're suspicious because, yeah. do you find it suspicious he has a receipt from getting his permit? Yes. 
Do you find it suspicious he didn't get a receipt from getting gas? Yes. yes. It's like, <laughs> what? He can't, can't win. <laughs> um, okay, so he calls her three times. He calls, he left the voicemail uh, on the answering machine at home. Mm-hmm. And he calls her cell phone twice now and has no response from her. He gets home around 4.30, which it all adds up. The time frame of mm-hmm. boating, driving, marina, warehouse, gas, gas it all adds mm-hmm. up. So he's home around 4.30. He notices that Lacey's not home, but her car is in the driveway. He's really not too concerned with this because, as we mentioned, she wanted to go grocery shopping. She was going to go over to her mom's house for the Christmas Eve party. So maybe she went over there to help her mom. Or maybe, maybe her mom came and picked together. her up. Right. Yes. So this isn't super suspicious to him. But the next thing he does has people pretty suspicious. He goes and he throws his clothes in the washer and takes a shower. Yeah, but he's all stinky. But he, he just, just went, went fishing. fishing. <laughs> I don't know why people find this suspicious that he went and wash, put his clothes in the washer and took a shower. I, I, I don't get that either. Like when Alex plays baseball and he comes home, the first thing he does is he puts his, his jersey and everything in the washer. It's stinky. It's gross. He washes it. That's like the right thing to do, right? It is. But Tom, I love you, honey. But I don't know that Tom knows how to work the washer. (laughs) (laughs) Throwing you under the bus. Well, so maybe that's what they find suspicious, that a man actually doing the laundry. Is that what people find suspicious? I don't know. I think because they threw it in so quickly. But again, I don't find that suspicious. It was stinky. No, that's what Alex does as soon as he gets home from his baseball games. He strips, he puts it in the washer, and he goes and he jumps in the shower. Because he's stinky. No big deal. No big deal. Um, Another thing people criticize him for is that he then goes to the fridge and gets a slice of pizza with a glass of milk. (laughs) Oh, he's hungry. A lot of people make fun of the fact that he's having pizza with milk. But again, that's Alex's way he eats pizzas with milk. I just thought that was really funny. Okay. So anyway, so as he's sitting there eating his pizza, he, oh, we forgot to mention, or I forgot to mention, Mackenzie was in the backyard with his leash on. Yes, he was. And the back door was unlocked. So when Scott comes home, Lacey's not there. The car is in the driveway. Mackenzie's in the backyard with his leash leash on on. and Mm -hmm. the back door is unlocked. But other than that, everything is... As he left it. So he's minus it's not Lacey. suspicious. Yeah. It's not suspicious enough that. For him to be concerned. No. The mop bucket was filled with water. She had left it. It was sitting outside the door. And so he went and he dumped it for her, which that makes sense. She's almost eight months pregnant. Mm-hmm. She probably couldn't or didn't want to dump it. So that makes sense, too. That's not suspicious. Mm-mm. He has his pizza. And then he's as he's sitting there, he notices that there's two messages on the answering machine. The first was his, that he left her, getting the basket for Papa message. So he's like, well, shoot, she hasn't been home for a while. But again, nothing to be concerned about. And then the second message is actually from Lacey's stepdad saying, when you two come over tonight, we need whipped cream for the pies. Mm-hmm. So that's when he was like, well, wait, if Lacey's not with them, where is she? What's going on? So at 517, Scott calls Lacey's parents. Is Lacey with you? She's not home. So now is when he starts to get a little concerned. She's not there. And within a couple of minutes, Lacey's family is calling around to see if Lacey is with somebody, anybody, if they'd seen her. Scott actually gets Mackenzie the dog and starts walking around the neighborhood because he knew that they wanted to walk that day. Maybe she had fallen somewhere or somebody Mm -hmm. had seen her. So he and Mackenzie go out looking for Lacey. At 547, Lacey's stepdad calls police. 
another thing that people kind of get suspicious about is why why didn't Scott, Scott call? But well, he's he was out, out walking with Mackenzie. So anyway, it takes police about an hour before they show up to the Peterson home. And some resources say that they actually met up with Scott and Sharon, Lacey's mom, at the local park where Lacey had presumably walked that day. Mm-hmm. That's where Scott and Mackenzie were looking. That's where the police came out and met with him. And Sharon was with him. They asked, can you know, we go look at your house? And he was very compliant with that and said, absolutely let's go back to the house it was getting cold anyway we can ask the questions let's just go there when the police get there they're going from room to room they're opening drawers i mean they're actually like doing a full-on search at this house there is a quote-unquote bulldog of a detective leading this investigation al brocchini and we'll get into him i'm not a big fan uh even though they find no evidence of a home invasion no evidence of blood or a struggle And even though Scott Peterson is being very cooperative, letting them in everywhere, even heading to the station for questioning at midnight. May I add here that they did find Lacey's purse and her car keys. Yes. So, but I mean, everything is, nothing is super suspicious in the house. The detective, Alan Brocchini, has eyes just for Scott. Oh, yeah. The things that made him suspicious of Scott. Now, these are just... In the documentary, he's like, there were two things that made me super suspicious of Scott. And the one was that when Scott apparently gave him a glass of water, asked him if he wanted water and gave him water, whatever. The detective put the water on the kitchen table and Scott was real quick to put a coaster underneath it. (laughs) Big deal. I mean, (laughs) that could just be that his wife has him trained. She seems very organized. It seems like that. She just has her man trained to make sure you put a coaster under it. Like, who knows how he was even raised? Like, I don't find that. Why is that suspicious? Because they're looking at him. So (sighs) the dude could do anything and they would call it suspicious. Yes, because the other thing that he did apparently that was super suspicious is that when the police are even looking in Scott's and Lacey's cars as they're opening doors, he's quick to like put a glove or something between the two doors so they don't nick each other. And, and then to wipe. And he's like, why is this man so worried about a ding in his car door and not where his wife is? Whoa, hold on. Just because he's worried about a ding in his car door, which, as we mentioned before, the man probably made around $60,000 and Lacey's car was a Land Rover. A, a Land Rover. So, yeah, he probably doesn't want a dink in that car. <laughs> but, like, why, why does that make him not worried about Lacey? And that's like my whole point, too, of when are we going to stop calling people guilty just because of the way they act and we don't agree with it? That's not fair. You're innocent until proven guilty. And just because he's acting a little off, we don't know how we would act in that situation. I'm a very OCD person. And it's not like I could turn that off just because Alex went missing. I would still be, I, I don't know, it's like ingrained in me. Maybe he's the same. I don't know. Maybe. I would not be doing that, but I don't do it on a regular basis <laughs> anyway. So, <laughs> uh, Like I said, Scott went down to the station to answer more questions at midnight, and he was there for a little over an hour. They grill him on his timeline. They pushed him on the Martha Stewart show. He claimed the couple <laughs> They even pushed him on the Martha Stewart show. And they're like, what was she cooking? Yeah. Scott's like, I don't know. Something with meringue, I think. Yeah. Quote. So you're telling me you have no idea where Lacey is? No. You didn't have any marriage problems? No. He is working with the police, answering all their questions. They ask him, would you be willing to take a polygraph? He instantly says yes. 
And then he asked, quote, are they accurate? And the police officer responds, quote, it's not uh, nothing that can be used against you. But yeah, yeah, I believe they're accurate. <laughs> Unquote. Scott's answer. I'm certainly willing. I mean, he was just yeah. totally cooperative. They've been with this man for just six hours from the time they met with him to the time that he's leaving this police station. They've been with him for about six hours and they have him just he's pegged. He's the guy. And he is treated as the number one suspect from the very beginning. While the police were at the Peterson house, Scott himself heard over the police radio, quote, husband is suspicious. Mm -hmm. I mean, even from there, the guy's going to start acting weird because he's like, oh, my God, all eyes are on me right now. What from did the I, very beginning. What, what do I, I do? do? How do I act? Exactly. And from what I could see, he was not a very emotional person. Not at anyway. all. Anyway. No, 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 no. And he was, he, he just did not wear his emotions on his sleeve, period. He didn't. And he did, the one time he showed his emotion was with his family on private phone calls. And then uh, that you hear from the prison sometimes. But Christmas morning, after I'm sure he didn't get any sleep at all, he calls his family because they were all supposed to get together Christmas morning. He calls them so terribly upset they can barely understand what he is saying. He's saying Lacey's missing and his mom actually believes that he's saying Lacey had a miscarriage. He Mm -hmm. is so just... Uh, you he, they could not even understand him. His siblings and his parents come straight to his house from San Diego. I mean, this family was just very close. Mm-hmm. His dad gives him advice to not take the polygraph, which I agree with. I mean, already all eyes are on him. And if anything on that test is even a little wonky, they were going to use it against him. Yeah, they're him. already turning everything he says around. Yes. So, so yeah. there was, I agree with the dad on that. Don't take the polygraph. Well, this made police even more suspicious because the 24th, he's saying, yeah, I'll take it. And then when they asked him to come back in and take it on Christmas. He's like, no, I'm not going to take the polygraph. So again, they found no physical evidence from the Peterson home or his warehouse of any nope. foul play. Lacey's hair was on a pair of pliers at the warehouse, but like, yeah, I hope his wife's hair is at the warehouse. Also, they were rusted shut. Yeah, so but like, I hope even, that she goes and sees her husband at work. Yeah, like, They couldn't even open the pliers, so that was neither here or there. It was neither here or there, but that's not what the media was reporting. Oh, good Lord. We're going to get into the media now? because We I'm... have to get into the media, Mom, because even up to this point, you guys are already like, whoa, I didn't know that. Wow, I didn't know that. I, mean, I bet you are because I did in my research the media story is so different if you just go on this case based on what you heard in the media and what you read when you were in the grocery line at the store Scott is totally guilty but it is so fabricated it is un there's so much BS, BS that we were fed through the media they would just report on it and they would never retract their statements nope. they'd never follow up on it either but they would just oh oh really they smelt bleach when the police investigated. Let's report it. Yeah. And that's what was all over the media from the beginning. There was never bleach in the home. That would never happened. Nope. Ted Rollins was actually one of the very first reporters on the scene at the Peterson house. And he was there all the time. Yes, he from was. From day one. He, he was, was a, there all the time. He was a Bay Area reporter for KTVU-TV. He's a classic morning show reporter. He's interviewed in the A&E documentary that mom and I watched. Mm-hmm for uh, uh, one of our resources. It's called The Murder of Lacey Peterson. It's a six-episode series. If you want to get in-depth, I, I highly suggest it. I thought it was very well yeah, done. Yeah, it's very good. Anyway, Ted Rollins is one of the, of the people interviewed in the documentary, one of the media. Mm-hmm. And he explains how the news world 
it's kind of an annul around this time uh, after Christmas anyway. So they're already looking for a new story mm-hmm. around this time of the year. They did all their Christmas stuff and now it's kind of just dead. So when they heard about a missing eight month pregnant woman from Modesto, he headed straight there on the early morning of December 26th. And this is around the time that live news had started. I yeah, mean, this that's... is during time of the war with Iraq. Mm-hmm. We're getting live feeds from that. Yes, yes. This was actually, and I didn't even know this, news coverage was be- becoming a round-the-clock thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I've always known it to yeah. be a 24-7 thing, but I guess it wasn't until this time. Mm-hmm. It was really starting. So, the, so think about that. They have all these holes now that they're trying to fill as well. Right. Not saying that this wasn't a story that needed to be covered. It's a missing woman, a missing pregnant woman. It has to be covered. Problem was, there's a lot of fabrication. Yes. And a lot of judging by the media. Mm -hmm. There's a certain one that was acting as a prosecutor, a witch. She was. A witch? (laughs) Yes, she was a witch. (laughs) Sorry. A prosecutor, which was, you know, something that she did do in her former life but now she's a media person she's a journalist and, and she's, she's acting still, still acting like a prosecutor basically calling him guilty period and, and yes we are talking about <clears throat> nancy grace um but this is also a very it's a story that would pull at your heartstrings it's oh yeah they young, had everybody hooked it's a young beautiful couple it's a 27 year old woman who appears just darling in all of her photos of her pregnant belly and she's going missing on christmas eve mm-hmm. i mean talk about a reality show kind of news it's it's the story that they want to report on over time and i'll chat a bit more about the media circus that became this case but man they really messed it up in my opinion they reported on so many wrong things things they claimed as evidence or facts and were in no in no way shape or form had any truth to them like the smell of bleach like mom mentioned journalists became prosecutors (laughs) nancy grace everyone went all in on this case to build an audience to sell more papers Mm -hmm. to to sell more magazines all losing sight honestly i feel the importance of the case and the investigation to find Lacey lacy and to find justice for lacy they just wanted a story so, so like I said, Ted Rollins is there outside the Peterson home at 5 a.m. on December 26th mm-hmm. for an interview. That's where it started. And I mentioned this time and this date for a reason. We are going to come back to it. Yep. It's kind of important. So December 26th has a few important things that happen in it. One of the first things that happens is police release photos of Scott's truck and boat asking if anyone saw it on December 24th to clear him to clear his alibi okay this is a great idea right right isn't this a great idea now think about this people if he is not the killer and the killers had Lacey where do you think would be the best place to put her body hmm hmm her husband is using the alibi that he was fishing at this bay (laughs) let's just go dump it right there right there and and keep in mind too they've had this guy as They've had this story. They've had this investigation now for two days. That's it. And they're already trying to clear his alibi to the public. (laughs) Meanwhile, they're not questioning any witnesses. So, hey. (laughs) There is a huge turnout from the community. There's a volunteer center set up at the Red Lion Hotel in town. They have a call center. They're making flyers. They're taking a tip line. Calls are coming in from witnesses that they saw Lacey walking McKenzie the morning of the 24th. 
4th. Yep. Somebody says I saw her around 10.30 here. I saw her at 10.45 over here. There were several witnesses. There was actually a nurse who was taking a break and was looking out over the park when she saw Lacey. A nurse with... taking a smoke break. Yeah, it was a nurse taking a, sn- I a smoke break. Very <laughs> ironic. I just had to throw that out there. Just smoke, I guess. No offense. No offense. I just thought that was pretty funny but she said that she saw Lacey walking her dog or a pregnant woman she didn't know who Lacey was but a pregnant woman with black pants on that's and a thing. white they could, shirt they all described her as a white tunic top and black, black pants, pants with short brown hair with a big walking dog. a big golden retriever looking yep. dog then she also said that she saw two men mm-hmm and Lacey had gotten into a dispute with these two men in the park. Because Mackenzie was barking at them. Because Mackenzie was barking. Well, you know, Obi barks at any anybody we pass in the park. Too, Especially if they when get, he doesn't if they, like him. If they get too close, oh, he will bark. He will. He, he does not like. And these guys were probably way too close to yep. Lacey. And so the dog was barking. So there's that witness. And I think you said that there were like 20... My resources said 21 to 24 reports of her being seen walking her dog. And mine says 31. Now, not that all 31 actually saw her because as they pointed out, there were there were other pregnant ladies who walked their dogs around yes. that area. So not all 31 that reported had actually seen Lacey, I don't think. Yeah, mine but was like there 21 were... reports of seeing her. And when you pinpoint them, they're in a complete circle that start at her house, go to the park, and come right back to That's her exactly house. exactly right. The route that she always That's took. exactly right. So-and-so said they saw her at 1030, and so-and-so said 1045. And it was this perfect circle that went f- would start from her house, would go around, go to the park, come back around, and head straight back to her house. So the question is, why were none of these followed up on yes all these reports were handed over to the police in full faith that they would check in with these witnesses and some of them were called by police and their story was listened to but nobody was ever spoken to face to face no and i think when you say a few of them were called it was maybe like five yeah yeah like because there were so many witnesses on that documentary that were like I saw her at 1045 I was washing my dishes and I saw her walking and another person driving by said I saw because she looked like she was having trouble Trouble because the dog was like pulling her and was trying to get to another dog and she looked like she was having trouble another person noticed her and said she should have a coat on it's cold out there but they all saw her and none Mm -hmm. of these people were None of those people were ever called by police. That, that's what they kept saying. We Nobody has ever spoken to us. And I. the reason for that is because this Karen service who said that she put McKenzie in the back. for that. Okay, but this is what they're using. The lady that put McKenzie in the backyard, she had a receipt or several receipts that she were times that were time stamped that holds up the time of 1018 of putting McKenzie Between in the back. Between 1010 and 1018 being the absolute latest that she would have put McKenzie in the backyard with the leash Beth on. and I have a dispute for that one. But anyway, now I just want to <laughs> quote the press release police are saying this now they're releasing on 12:29 unfortunately we have no concrete leads from those tips at this point they hadn't even talked 
they didn't to even these talk witnesses. To them. And no, they're not all going to be carrying receipts. I understand that. And I know they need to base their investigation on facts. But when you have over 20 people saying they saw the a woman thing. in black pants, a white tunic, walking a golden retriever, WTF. I know. On 1230 press release again. Modesto police investigators have virtually left no stone unturned. And still, any leads as to Lacey's whereabouts have not been revealed. And then this blatant lie, quote, although witnesses were located in the park area who claimed to have seen a pregnant woman walking a dog, no positive identifications of Lacey have been established since Scott last saw her at their house. And that was just, that was just a lie. That is just a plain lie. So back on the 26th of December, Scott's family is actually all over there again to be with their brother, their son. And the one sister is actually about to put a lasagna in when the detective stops her and says, uh, we got a couple guys heading over for a search warrant. So they came over. Scott willingly let them look around on the 24th. But now they're coming over with a warrant on the 26th. Mm -hmm. And the detective in the documentary even made note, you know, we weren't. It wasn't necessarily about what we were going to find. We, we weren't going to find anything. We knew we weren't going to find anything. It was to gauge how Scott reacted to us coming over. Mm-hmm. Now, this can be looked at in different ways, but they came with the warrant and they asked for Scott to sign the warrant or some paperwork with the warrant. And he had been advised not to sign anything without his attorney present. So he calls his attorney. It's around 530 at night. He can't get a hold of his attorney. And he says, I'm not going to sign it because my attorney told me not to sign anything. And they still proceeded with the warrant of searching the home. But they all, of course, made this into some. Oh, he doesn't want us searching. He's not going to sign it. He doesn't want us to search. And this search is huge, Mom. They have dogs. They're bagging things up. And, And it just makes me so mad because the detective even says, we knew we weren't going to find anything. There's nothing here. But they're doing all of this, and there's this huge media circus outside. Yeah. They're performing, I think, for the media. It's disgusting to me. Again, this is on the 26th. She was reported missing on the 24th. Yep. The media is there on Scott's street, day in, day out. Scott wants nothing to do with it. He gives no interviews. He, If he sees the camera, he turns and goes the other way. He walks Mackenzie every day, but he just avoids the cameras and talking and answering any questions and everyone thinks this is so odd but i don't know if if i already know the police are looking at me why would i want to talk to the media what what are they gonna do ask questions hey do you know what what, they were hounding him already i know hey what'd you do with lacy so why would he want to talk to them i I don't know i don't find that odd that he wouldn't want to talk to the media Lacey's family, they're holding press conferences and they're speaking to the press. You know, the press keeps reporting that he doesn't look like he's grieving. Right. Uh, Mom even mentioned he doesn't seem like somebody he really... Shows his emotions. Shows his emotions at all. all. Mm -mm. He's got the same expression from day one. I found the same expression from day one all the way through his trial and everything. I would agree with you. The same exact... He kind of has this, I think, natural little smirk thing. Excuse my language, but you know how some people have resting bitch face? Have you ever heard that yeah, phrase? He yeah, he has resting smirk face. It's a smirk or, yeah, it's like a resting just grin. It's like a soft grin. It is, but it looks like it he's looks really cocky. It looks a little cocky. malicious. Yeah. <laughs> just makes him look really cocky and, yeah. But he, but he looks like that from day one all the way he through. He does. Uh, but here's my theory on that. Uh, maybe this is not a guy hiding a murder, but a guy hiding 
Another little secret? Oh, you think? Another character in this drama, Amber Fry. He had met her girlfriend at a conference. Her girlfriend said, oh, I have this friend. She's a massage therapist and she is tired of playing the dating game. She really wants to meet a man. Now, Scott had said that he was not married. So nobody thinks he's married at this conference. He and Amber meet and they go out for dinner at this very expensive, nice sushi bar. After dinner, they go back to his hotel, have a glass of champagne, and then they go out for karaoke and then they go back to the hotel and, you know. (laughs) Then the couple went out and had sex a few more times. I think they saw each other. They were dating for like five weeks, but only literally. They were seeing each other for five weeks, but saw each each other other for times four times four times now they have the phone calls and the texts were very many but 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 hold on because back up going into this i was always led to the assumption that they had been having this long and they long yeah and he left he left lacy all the time and went and he saw this this woman four four times. times that's not that is not diminishing the fact that he was cheating on his wife at all but he saw her four times This was not some big drawn out thing. No. Right. So I guess because they met on November 20th. Okay. As Thanksgiving rolled around, Scott told Amber that he was going to be in Alaska fishing with his dad. So they couldn't spend Thanksgiving together. Right. Oh, lie one. He told Amber that he had been married. Had been. Had been. But he had recently lost his wife and this was going to be the first Christmas without her. He would not go into any details, simply telling Amber that it was too painful to talk about. And that is where I have no... I have no... I have no... I have no... (laughs) No words. (laughs) I... It's very eerie to me that he says he lost his wife. And this is the... First Christmas without her. And then and then it happens. she goes missing. That's either some really screwed up karma or... Or he did have something to do uh, with it. No. See, it's just, this is where... I did not say I liked this guy. This is I where he not. screws himself over. I, I mean, he... No, I can't stand this guy. But uh, it's not meaning that he's guilty. Right. I'm not saying he is a good person by any means. Mm-mm. The defense even says that in trial, which we'll get to that. I'm not saying I like this guy at all. He is a liar and he is a cheater. I don't think he was a murderer. Yeah. He lies without a problem. I mean, as we'll say later. But anyway, I guess on December 10th, Scott and Amber went as a couple to a fancy Christmas party. And if Mm -hmm. you see pictures. That's where all the pictures are from. Mm -hmm. Her red dress. She's on his lap. He's got this nice suit on and maybe even. I, I think he has a Santa hat on. Yeah, I and think a so. Of the pictures. I think so. And they do look like they're very much into each other. Well, yeah. This is the second time they've seen each other ever. <laughs> so I guess Lacey, around that same time, you see a picture of her sitting in a chair with a red dress on. She was at a Christmas party. She was at a Christmas party by, by herself. herself. Mm. Do you like him yet? I'm not wanting them to like him. I just don't think he's guilty. 
Amber told the police that it wasn't until a friend showed her a news article about the missing Lacey that she learned that Scott Peterson was married. Correct. And I am not going to victim blame because she is a victim in all of this. Oh, definitely. She is. But it really took a little while for this girl to put two and two together. She literally read this paper and was like, oh, his name's Scott Peterson. Oh, he works with fertilizing. Oh, that picture kind of looks like the Scott I'm seeing. Well, she was she uh, was really in love with him by this time. And she wanted oh, yeah. she wanted it to work out. I mean, you know, gosh, if I mean, what a blow that would be, really, honestly. <laughs> Yeah. When she found this out, she called the police. Detectives Rochini and Bueller met with Fry in person. Sorry. Met with Fry in person and convinced her to tape phone conversations with Scott. She agreed to do so. And this is where Scott really digs himself a hole. She recorded the calls. They go to Radio Shack and they get the equipment. Oh my! Put on her phone. Oh my gosh! And the minute it's on the phone, he calls. They walk out of Radio Shack. He calls. The police take her to Radio Shack. I thought that was so funny. The minute she walks out of Radio Shack with the police, Scott calls her. Yep. I mean, it was right on. So she re- recorded the calls for two months. The one recorded call between her and Scott that literally makes me sick to my stomach is a conversation during a candlelight vigil for Lacey. On December 31st. Yes. He basically uses the background crowd noise of the vigil for Lacey. As the crowd noise at the Eiffel Tower for New Year's Eve. He had told her that he was traveling in Europe. He called and listening to that conversation just makes me ill. So he stood in the very back of the Lacey gathering and Mm -hmm. called her and said that he was celebrating New Year's in Paris and even described the fake scene. I mean, he described it to a T. Yeah, he did. Oh, there's fireworks and there's people just laughing and having a good time here. Oh, I wish you were here. It's just great. Blah, blah, blah. Oh, it's so sickening. Yeah, it's bad. It's bad. Another thing that happened at the vigil, too, was the picture of Scott smiling. The family explains this, that he was he was with his niece. Yeah, his six-year-old niece. Yes, and they were, they were sharing a moment, and he smiled, and the media captured it. But this is just another way that he was put out in the public of this non-grieving husband laughing at the vigil. And he wasn't laughing. He was just sharing a moment with this little girl. It was. It was just... It's... It's the picture you want to have taken. I mean, that you want to take, though, if you're on the media. Again, I'm not trying to prove he's not a sleazeball, but (laughs) I think we've established that. (sighs) January 24th, Amber spoke at a press conference and admitted to her affair with Scott. I just can't imagine how hard that would have been. Oh, she was literally shaking at the press conference. She was shaking. Mm -hmm. And she is just this little thing. Mm -hmm. I mean, she's just tiny. That takes guts. For sure. So the tape conversations continue until February 19th, 2003. Which, you know, he does not know that her phone is tapped. No. He calls her several times even after that and even applauds her for coming forward, which I thought was really weird. He he did. He goes, I'm so proud of you. I'm so proud of you. Stepping up and and doing that. And And I'm going to get up there and admit it too, but... I want to wait till after Tuesday because this is a State of the Union address and I don't want to conflict with that. So I think I'll probably do it Thursday. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Scott wants to come forward and actually do some interviews. And in that phone conversation he's having with Amber, he does tell Amber too, though. I love Lacey. He does. 
He said, he said it multiple times. I love Lacey. And she's like, well, why are you calling me? And he's like, well, because I'm proud of you for making that announcement. You need to take care of yourself because the media is going to be after you now. They're going to be hounding you. That's what he's telling her. But he's like, I love Lacey. It's just weird because it's like, it okay, you weird. love Lacey, but you're calling this chick and you continue to call her exactly. until like February. Even, even when Lacey is missing yeah, and your heart supposedly is being torn out, you're still calling Amber and, hey, beautiful, how are you doing? Oh, and no, no. It's worse than that. It's like, what are you wearing? Oh, yeah. They get into very sexual conversations. I think he was a little, I think he was a little bit of a sex addict. Oh, I agree. It's like, what are you wearing? Oh, I love Lacey. And it's like... Okay. Dude, <laughs> you can't you have, have it a all. problem. I mean, I'm like, sorry. I don't. Yeah, <laughs> just. I mean, even if he and Lacey had a terrible relationship, and this woman, but she is missing. She's carrying his child and is missing. Yeah. But let me call this chick and see what she's wearing real fast. <laughs> exactly. I just, I don't know. I'm not a man. No offense. I don't know how the male brain works. But well, I just not like that. I don't think that's normal. It's that not. is not normal. <laughs> that <laughs> is not normal. No. Maybe not smiling and talking to media. I, I, you know, I can understand that. But this, I don't know. But he all, he, you know, he says, you know, you're very, I'm very proud of you for coming forward. Now I'm going to do interviews. I need to get the facts out there because people are really running with the wrong stories here. And he says, you know, they're, if they want to look at me, they can look at me, look into me, but don't stop looking for Lacey. Putting too much emphasis on me. And that's and what he says. He's like, look other where, look other where, look everywhere else, look down all these different avenues. Look at me if you think it was me, but don't stop looking for Lacey. And he feels like they did. They stopped looking for Lacey. Mm-hmm. They're making this into some reality. And now there's a girlfriend involved. Now it is a reality TV show <laughs> that people want to know what's going to happen next. So he decides to do these interviews and he <laughs> he does a few little ones in the local news. These, of course, get torn apart by everyone reading into everything he says. Yeah, of and course. his eyes were looking and darting in every direction. And it's like, Oh, my gosh. Then he does some big ones. One of them being with Diane Sawyer. Big mistake. Big, big mistake. Huge. (laughs) Big. Huge mistake. His lawyers were like, don't do this interview. Don't do this. If anybody's going to have an interview with Diane Sawyer, they should be coached. And he was not. Obviously. He dug himself. He lied. He. Oh. Oh, not a good thing. Two things. One is that he claims that Lacey knew about the affair with Amber. In this interview with Diane Sawyer, he claims that she wasn't happy about it, but it wasn't something that was going to tear them apart. <laughs> it's just interesting to me because the affair did continue. Yeah. So so I don't know. Was it like, we're going to just see how Christmas is and then I'll talk to her then? Or was it like, I'm going to have this affair and you're just going to like it? Like, or did she really not know about it? Was right. he lying about it? I don't think he thought that lie through because he also claimed that he had told police right off about that he Amber. was having an affair. I mean, you saw the recording, the tape. They you know, asked, do you have marriage the, problems? And the he interview. Said, and he said, no. And again, maybe, maybe to those him. weren't marriage problems. <laughs> maybe to him, they were marriage problems. <laughs> so maybe that was the truth. <laughs> The other thing that he said in this interview that's so cringeworthy and it totally buries him. He's talking to Diane Sawyer about how much he loves Lacey. And he says, quote, she was, I mean, is amazing. Unquote. Mm -hmm. At that point, I think everybody in America stopped watching. Yeah, that's it. He did it. He's already talking about his wife in the past tense and she's only been gone for a month. 
January 2003 comes. February comes. Connor's due date comes and goes. It is now March. Nothing is moving forward with the Scott angle. But they're also not moving forward with any other angles. Nope. Nope. Even though there are other angles to pursue. There's three months of just nothing. If they're not finding anything in Scott in these three months, why aren't they using this time to look down other avenues? I Uh, don't, I just don't understand that. I don't, I, I, that one I don't get. April 13th, Connor's body is found. April 14th, a torso is found a mile away from where Connor's body was found. The body of a late-term male baby was found by dog walkers in Richmond's Point Isabel Regional Shoreline Park, north of Berkeley, on the shore of the San Francisco Bay. So it's still in the area that he was fishing. Yes, it is. Okay. And right now, we don't know it's Connor. There was a nylon tape, and you have a different, You, I think you said you had a wire or something, but I read there was a nylon tape loosely wrapped around the baby's neck and upper torso. And I read it was like a wire of some sort, maybe a fishing wire wrapped around, noosed around his neck and loosely around his chest. I'm not saying that that was done by somebody else. Could have easily have happened in Could've the water. Could have easily been in the water, of course. And his little ear was taped over by some electric tape. An electrical tape had his ear taped down. Yeah. The umbilical cord had been torn, not cut. But otherwise, the baby was in, the body was intact. Yes. And then, as you said, a day later, walkers found a decomposing torso a mile away from where the body of the baby had been found. The remains were those of a woman wearing beige pants and a maternity bra. The body had been decapitated and the limbs were missing. The torso had been emptied of all organs except for the uterus. So she was seen in black pants. She was. I don't think Scott ever came forward and said what she was wearing that day. Maybe she got dressed after he left. But I know, living in maternity clothes like I have been, even if my pants are purple, the thing that goes over my belly Mm -hmm. is usually beige. So I don't know if that's what was found. Oh, but that's another reason the police didn't believe the witnesses because they all said she was wearing black. black. But I don't think it has anything to do with it. I think the witnesses were still on par. But anyway. And because the decapitation and the limbs were missing, that's when they thought that she had been, her limbs and everything had been tied down to by anchors, cement blocks. So we'll get into a little bit of that with the trial, but it was believed because of the tide and if she is being held down by anchors that her limbs, sorry, this is kind of gruesome, but would be ripped off, mm-hmm. which I can see that. And she, if she has something even on her neck, holding her down. Mm-hmm. She had no organs, so that would make sense why Connor would have been out. As her body decomposed, it basically pushed the baby out. Right. Why she didn't have organs, that part, I don't know. I don't, I don't understand that. But I don't either. Even if you're being tossed around in waves, it's not like a tsunami out there. I like, guess the fish got to her. But, but why would they not eat? I don't know. Why would they go in and eat? I don't know. It, it That part doesn't make sense to me. So on April 18th, DNA results verified that the remains were those of Connor and Lacey. Scott was arrested that 
same day. Let's talk about that, shall we? Let's when do. Scott was arrested, he was arrested with bleached blonde hair, a bleached goatee, driving around in a red Mercedes. Mercedes. Inside the vehicle, they found camping gear, four cell phones, his brother's ID, $15,000 in cash, hiking boots, a shovel, a photo of him and Lacey, and Viagra. 12 Viagra tablets from mm. what I saw. So the media, of course, gets a hold of all this and they say, he's he's running. Well, that's what I have always thought. But even that doesn't make sense. We're going to go into detail about why he had all those items. But right. the, why would he wait until DNA comes back saying it's Lacey and Connor, then he runs? He Why wouldn't it. he have run before the bodies were even I found? I think he got everything together when he found out that the bodies were found. And it just happened to be that day that he skedaddled. But that's not what happened. Scott was actually going to meet at the golf course with his family. As you have heard when, you, when I introduced Scott, he's a golfer. It's something he and his father bonded on from a very, very early age. His dad, his brother-in-laws, his brothers, his sisters, they were all going to go golfing that day. They hadn't been together in a while. Scott had been in a rut. I mean, I can imagine you're being followed around by the media all the time. He wanted to go golfing with his family. On the way to the golf course, he is being followed, and he believes it is the media. The media. He calls his brother. Now, this call actually saves his butt because he doesn't know it, but one of these four phones, if not all of them, are tapped <laughs> by the police. <laughs> And the phone calls basically to his brother like, hey, man, I'm really close, but I'm just not going to come because the media is on me. And that's I don't want this today. I wanted to have a nice game of golf with my family and I don't want to be in pictures. I don't want them taking pictures of me like I'm not going to come golfing today. And he drives around San Diego like kind of crazy, like a crazy man yeah, being followed. dodging and. But these are the police following him. Mm -hmm. This is not the media. He ends up going to the golf course. I don't know if he thought he had lost them or if he had just like no place to go. I think he thought he had lost them. But he goes back to the golf course and he is arrested. Now, all the items in the car. First of all, let's start with the fact that he had bleached hair. Now, the media went crazy with the fact that he had grown a goatee and had bleached it all out. But did you know that he had actually met with the cops like that several times? No, I did not know that. He he went to go visit the cops. There's pictures of it with just the goatee and then even with it all bleached out. He was trying to get disguised from the media. That's why he got a different car. He traded in his truck. He got a bright red Mercedes. That makes (laughs) sense. But he was trying to disguise himself. He's like, I just wanted to get go to the grocery store. I just wanted to go get gas and not have my picture taken everywhere I went. So that makes sense to me. He had met with police, quote unquote, disguised with this terribly bleached orange hair. <laughs> Says the hairdresser. <laughs> the hiking boots had always been in his car, his family said. He was an outdoorsy guy. Hiking boots and camping gear had always been in his car. The cash, did you understand that part? His mom apparently had borrowed used, borrowed his borrowed, borrowed cash. money from him. And this was Good Friday that he was arrested. Yep. So she had taken out cash to give him to pay back two or like two days prior, which makes sense. Maybe the banks aren't open. He hadn't had time to get to the bank. I mean, but that's why he had fifteen thousand dollars cash. The, yeah. His mom had paid him back. His brother's ID uh, actually was going to be getting him a discount at the golf course. He had $15,000 cash in his car. <laughs> he still needed a discount. But he wanted that discount. <laughs> he 
you wanted $15 off. (laughs) You know, another thing, too, maybe his family didn't want to admit it, but he wanted to hide the fact he was Scott Peterson going to the golf course. Right. Right. I mean, you're checking in at the golf course and they... But wouldn't his brother have the same name and stuff? I mean... As Scott Peterson? Oh, he's still Peterson. But that doesn't matter. I'm sure there's a lot of Petersons. That's a pretty common name. But you're going to the golf course, you're checking in, and all of a sudden you're checking in under the name of Scott Peterson. Like that kid working the desk wouldn't call and be like, oh my gosh, Scott Peterson's here golfing. So I think maybe his family just didn't want to admit that he was... I, I don't know. Why did he have four cell phones? I don't know. I don't know. Why did he have several changes of clothes? He was living out of his car. Okay. He was living out of his car. What's up with the Viagra? That I don't freaking know. That I can't tell you. But again, having Viagra does not mean you're a murderer. Nope. It means you're lacking in (laughs) other areas. (laughs) Either he's a genius who can kill and get away with it or... He's just totally dumb and just has the worst Worst luck luck. (laughs) anybody. I mean, I I don't know. All right. Now for the drama of the trial. Mm -hmm. It was just a totally, oh my gosh, it's a mess. It was trial by media. Yeah. Plain and simple. That's what it was. Yeah. In it. And the trial was the real trial <laughs> was nothing like the trial the media was reporting on. It just, it wasn't. It was like two different trials were going on. And it's information from the trial that makes me 100% sure that this man did not have a fair trial. No, 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 no. No matter whether he did it or not, Scott Peterson did not have a fair trial and at he, all. And you need to always remember, innocent until proven guilty. And this man was never proven guilty no but he walked in there guilty yeah he was just he was from never, assumption he was never innocent just from people like nancy yeah. grace who said i don't like this guy he gives me the a bad vibe he did it that is her reasoning and that was america's reasoning he yep. smiled at the vigil he had a girlfriend he did it okay so let's talk about the big thing for this trial that i think really screwed it up was the jury selection That's one of the things, yes. First of all, the court, they're like, we're getting a ton of media on this trial. We need to move it out of Modesto, right? I agree. Yeah. So let's just move it 50 miles up the road. Let's just move it 50 miles up the road to Redwood, which, by the way, is moving it closer to San Francisco where the media hub is. Yep. Which wasn't Redwood where Jim Jones moved his colt. I'm pretty sure. Anyway. Sorry. But there's too much media coverage. We're going to move it 50 miles. I mean, we were hearing about this case in Kansas. Like, yeah. How do you pick? How do you pick a jury like that? Because everybody's heard about this. Everybody. And they even had, you remember the billboards? Oh, gosh. They had huge billboards with Scott Peterson's name on it saying basically he was guilty. I don't know how you would pick a jury for this. But moving it 50 miles is not going to help. No. Even moving to Kansas wouldn't help. I mean, it was just... Wow. So the other thing I think it's really crazy is the jury process. They kind of went back and forth on the idea that the jury be sequestered, which I didn't understand what exactly what that meant. But basically, they pick their jury. Then they put the jury up in a hotel. Mm-hmm. They basically have these jury members isolated and hidden away and monitored. Yep. No TV, no newspaper, no so they social have no media, outside nothing. resources. Right. They did this for the O.J. Simpson trial. But this trial was even 
bigger than the O.J. Simpson trial, and they decided not to have the jury sequestered. They said expense was the reason. And that blow, this was such a big, it's all over. Yep. This From the beginning, he did not have a fair trial. And more and more is coming out every day, and yet it was too expensive to put them up in a hotel. This jury selection is really hard. They're looking for what they call stealth juror, which is basically someone who lies to get on the jury. Yeah, they're just liars to get on the jury so that they can tell, they can, you know, say he's guilty. And basically... Everybody had heard of the Scott Peterson and Lacey Peterson thing. And so they could admit that, yes, we've heard of this because that. Right. There's nobody that. But then they asked, do you, you know, something about is he guilty or whatever? And well, the judge right away, he dismissed 50 percent of those called in for jury duty because they were like, yeah, he's guilty. Mm -hmm. So they right away, they got rid of 50 percent. The judge also dismissed anyone who was against the death penalty. So technically, what the judge should have done was said like, so the law here is the death penalty. If this man is found guilty, do you think you could apply the law to this case? Didn't do that, though. If you were against the death penalty, you were out. Mm. Which leaves like a certain kind of person for the jury. I was actually listening to Crime Junkie and Brit put it in a way that exactly quote a very angry vindictive one yep and that's that's exactly right and and like i said before and i'll say it again the media was a total circus they had been saying things as fact when they were just heard through the grapevine and then even if they found that those were not facts it's not like they retracted their statements didn't they just moved on with their storyline of this guy doesn't care he killed his wife and son let's get him so that's all these jury were getting the peterson family was not a very well-off family, and they paid a million dollars for their attorney, Mark Daragos. I think it's Daragos. He had been on Larry King, along with Nancy Grace, and had always spoken innocent till proven guilty. Yep. He wasn't claiming he was innocent, but he was saying, saying, we we need the proof. Right, right. And Mark's team had a lot of PIs. And this investigative defense attorney, Matthew Dalton, I don't know if you remember him from the documentary, but he spent a lot of time with Scott. Yes. Mm-hmm. He went through the thousands upon thousands of pages of discovery and spent hours upon hours with Scott getting to know him, working the case. And there was a time that he even said to Scott, quote, hey, listen, if she hit her head or she slipped. Right. Just tell me. If there's some yeah. kind of accident. We can get you in for manslaughter. We can get you out of here in six years. And Scott was adamant. I did not do this. This Matthew Dalton even called Scott a mama's boy. Yep. He, he's like, he could not have done this. He's such a mama's boy. He's constantly calling his mom and his dad and his sisters. And, and another thing that he pointed out in the documentary was that nowhere in Scott's past ever had there ever been any physical altercation or violence ever to anybody. Right. To anybody. Not even that guy that he apparently was butting heads with on his golf team back in college. Nothing. All right. So let's move on to the trial. June 1st, 2003 was the first day of trial. It was the opening statements of the prosecution, and they really used the storyline that the media Media, had been portraying. Scott was a sleaze. (laughs) Their statement was that Scott had killed Lacey the evening of the 23rd. Mm -hmm. He had spent that evening and the morning of the 24th cleaning up the crime scene. They claimed he was a liar. 
The schedule he had given of Christmas Eve was all a lie. She never gave a walk to Mackenzie. There was never a Martha Stewart show making meringue. <laughs> it was all a lie. He had cleaned the crime scene, then took the body to the marina in his boat, took her out into the bay, and dumped her body. His motive was that he did not want to be a father. He did not want to be in a relationship. He wanted to date other people. And instead of getting a divorce, he chose murder. All of this, keep in mind, has no evidence to it. None. None. <clears throat> Just saying. All of this is not necessarily enough to prove he's a killer, but it is enough to make the jury not like him. Mm -hmm. June 2nd, the defense has their opening statement. And this statement starts with a bang. Basically, he gets out there and he says, you're not going to like my guy. <laughs> <laughs> he was not a faithful husband and he was a liar. Sure, but he's not a killer. Everything the prosecution stated has no merit to it. There are no facts. But here's a fact. Boom. He shows the clip of Martha Stewart from Christmas Eve. And lo and behold, she's making, making meringue. <laughs> The prosecution looks like total fools. They do. They do. From the very beginning, they look like total ding-dongs. The first testimony comes the next day on June 3rd. A witness from the prosecution that kind of throws a kink into their plans. Again, it's a computer guy. Um, I don't know how to explain him, but he's a computer guy. And he's explaining the forensic evidence he found on the computer at the warehouse. This, like I mentioned before, was to show the window of time. There's that 20-minute hole in time that they say he was strapping anchors to Lacey and preparing to throw her body overboard. Yeah, right. But little did the prosecution, or heck, the defense, Scott didn't even know, that the computer guy, again, I don't know what to call him, but he found... I think he's an IT guy. Yeah, well, he... That's probably a little <laughs> nicer to call him. The IT man found information on the home computer as well. Yes, he did. He found that at 8.40 a.m. on Christmas Eve, so the 24th, someone had looked at some women's clothing. I believe it was a red women's scarf from Gap. From Gap. Mm-hmm. And a sunflower umbrella. A search most likely done by, by Lacey. Lacey. But wasn't Lacey supposed to be dead at this point? So prosecution brings this computer guy on, and then he says, I have proof Lacey was alive. And prosecution's like, well, crap. <laughs> okay right Backing then and up. there Backing they up. have to change their entire tactic their timeline have to change their timeline right and i try to play with this fact of okay it was the at-home computer how do we know this was lacy yes she loved sunflowers mm -hmm. i'm just trying to play devil's advocate in all this she had a sunflower tattoo all of her friends know she loved sunflowers Who's to say this wasn't Scott pretending to be Lacey? But then he would have called out, check my at-home computer. I was home at this time. Yeah, he didn't or even. Or check my at-home computer. Lacey was on the computer at he this time. He didn't even know that Lacey had he been on the computer. He did not even know, which makes sense with this timeline because he got up around 8, 830. Mm -hmm. Yeah, maybe it was Scott looking for Christmas gifts for other people. But I find it really weird because it was a sunflower and that was her thing. Maybe he was looking for a gift for her that late. <laughs> <laughs> wouldn't surprise me so like i said right then and there prosecution has to change their tactic he killed her that morning that's what they say yep, now. now we're changing which gives him a much smaller window to kill her and clean up the mess which may i mention he must be a great cleaner or a great killer because there was no evidence of any struggle granted he could have strangled, strangled her, her. Mm -hmm. i don't know i don't know the prosecution had no case, Mom. They didn't know where the murder happened. They didn't know when the murder happened. And they didn't even know 
how the murder happened. Right. It's like at every turn they were proven. I mean, they looked like fools. And then the so this is happening in the courtroom, but was the media reporting outside? They're reporting that there was vomit cleaned up by the pool. Where the heck did that even come from? I have no idea. I have no idea. The house smelled like bleach. Um, Bogus. No. And my favorite was that Nancy Grace kept going on and on about cement. (laughs) (sighs) Apparently, police had found a bag of cement at Scott's warehouse. He admitted that he had made a homemade anchor for his boat from the cement. But the bag was basically empty. So the police were like, well, where's the rest of the cement? And this is where their theory comes in that he had made two for her legs, two for her arms, and one for her neck, and mm-hmm. possibly one for his boat. So that's why the bag of cement was gone. And this is their whole storyline. But he claims, well, no, I had some leftover cement, so I took it home with me. Our driveway had a few cracks and some uneven places, so I just poured the cement there. <laughs> Which mom and I laugh because that doesn't make any sense. He's just doing a rain dance after he poured the cement hoping rain would come so he could mix and become some. Well, I'm assuming I mean, he had already made the cement and he does only live like nine minutes from home. I think he didn't make the cement. I think he just poured it on the driveway. I don't know. It wasn't clear. And Nancy Grace is going crazy over this. <laughs> that doesn't make sense. And, and I get it. It is weird. It is weird. It but is weird. There was a time that Nancy Grace ended up going to the Peterson home mm-hmm. and the man with her points on the ground and hey look there's some new cement right next to the driveway no he really did do it he really did carry the cement and sprinkle it in those holes or whatever he did he did a terrible job of it yeah it i don't see how that would fix any cracks really <laughs> made no sense but you know he works with plants not with cement so yes basically totally proves nancy grace's little theory wrong and she just looks at this cement and she goes oh and never mentions never the retracts again nope. never retracts just never mentions it again doesn't come forward and say she was wrong about the cement because you know that doesn't fit the storyline that she's been preaching about just moves on other things that happened in the trial that were just crazy was when detective al burkini was called to the stand mm-hmm His notes on the case literally claimed that Lacey Peterson had no idea about Scott's boat. She had no idea about the boat, apparently, which doesn't make sense because that's where he was working. That doesn't make sense. No. So to you and me hearing that her hair was found on some pliers, but she didn't know about the boat. He was keeping some secret. Makes him look super suspect. But this was actually found to be falsified information. He had left it out of his notes. And Lacey had actually been at the warehouse only days before her disappearance, even going across the way to ask someone else in the warehouse if she could use their bathroom. <laughs> Defense tore Al Burkini apart on the Good. stand. They caught him in a lie. He, he just rubbed. Talk about somebody who rubs me the wrong way. He lied and left things out of his notes. He is a detective. He lied so much from the beginning of the case on. He saw Scott, wanted to blame Scott, and that was it. That was his, nope. that was a storyline. closed. And he was going to find anything that fit into that storyline. And if it didn't fit into the storyline, he was going to leave it out. By week four of the trial, one of the jury had to be let go. Do you remember, do you understand why? I guess he was interviewed in the A&E documentary and he claimed it was because he made casual talk to Brett, Lacey's brother. 
Right. They were just checking in. They had gone through the, the sensor thing. Metal detector. The metal, de- thank you. The metal detector. And they were both getting their stuff. And he just he leaned over He made a comment about said, like, sorry, they're not going to get your picture today because he was kind of in front right. of the camera. It was just a stupid comment. And other jurors claimed that it's because he was too chatty about the case out in public. Right. Like bringing it up like when they went out to go get a drink and mm-hmm. stuff after mm-hmm. a trial. I don't know what the reason, but I uh, he was so for he Scott, Scott being was innocent. innocent. He was convinced Scott was innocent, and lo and behold, he's he now kicked off off of the yep yeah, off of the jury. It was very weird. Now the two things that turned this trial around, I think, and Mom, I want to know your opinion. But the first thing is when they showed the autopsy. Yeah, pictures, especially of baby Connor. Connor. Mm-hmm. Some juror in the documentary claimed that Scott wouldn't even look at the screen, no. and he showed no emotion. Other jurors said that he just sat there and showed no emotion and his reactions to the autopsy photos were strange and that's according to jurors that they commented on that but then it was kind of i thought it was interesting that it was proven from where scott was sitting very few of the jurors could actually see his face see his face especially if he had turned a little bit to look at the pictures or look down they could not see him he was being blocked Yep. By by the defense and just the way that courtroom is situated. I don't find it weird if he doesn't want to look at that picture. No, in fact, was Lacey's family didn't, I, I don't think Scott's family either. They didn't go those days. They did they not, did not want go to, to court see. that day. Yeah. Unfortunately, as jurors, you have to see that it, it would have been horrific. The second thing that turned this case around was the Amber Fry tapes. That did it. That totally Totally did it. I think the prosecution was going down, was going down fast. Yep. And then in walks Amber. Yeah, and we've we've talked already about it. It's just a it's a strong character witness about how he can lie and ask this woman what she's wearing when his wife was missing. Yeah, it, it turned, turned the trial everything yeah. around. Yeah. I think even the defense attorneys, you know, they read through the script of like what was said on these phone calls mm-hmm. and like, oh, we got this. This is fine. We can. Then they listen to it and yeah. it's like we are screwed. When you listen to it, it's completely, completely different than reading through the script. <sighs> and scripts. I know it was a character witness and I know it's basically what won the case for the prosecution, but it makes me so mad. He was a weak man. He was vain. He was getting attention. I am not justifying cheating by any means. Did not prove that he killed her. Regardless of his reasons, his weaknesses in this affair, that does not prove he killed her. Mm -mm. But these people, the the jurors, looked at these tapes as, that said, he did it. Tapeses? Tapeses. They looked at the tapeses. And they didn't even look. They listened to the tapeses. Woo! It's a long episode. Have we lost you guys yet? (laughs) Okay. Botlighting the affair compromised the search for Lacey and finding answers for Lacey. In the investigation, in the trial, in all of it, it compromised Lacey's voice. Like, we always want to speak for the victims, and it was turned into some drama series, unfortunately, for Lacey. Okay, let's jump back into a few facts from the trial that you may not have heard. The defense had a guy, same height and weight, actually take an identical boat, like Scott's, out of the same place on a day with identical weather patterns and had the guy try to dump 
a 150-pound weight off the side of the boat. Keep in mind, Lacey would have weighed more than that, especially Mm -hmm. being pregnant and having, in the prosecution's ideas, of having anchors on her feet and her arms and her head. Right. I just have to bring this up, but the guy tried it four times and almost drowned. He almost drowned. He kept capsizing. They have video of him and he kept capsizing. The boat kept filling with water. There were scratches all over the boat from the anchors being dragged. Mm -hmm. He could not get that thing overboard. No, he could not do it. But the judge did not allow this as evidence. Nope. But what did he allow as evidence? What did he allow as evidence? Well, he allowed the jury to go out on Scott's boat and walk around it and see how stable it was on on land. land. They got in it and kind of wiggled and waggled, but it was sitting right there in the sand. This makes no sense to me. None. Now, I understand. You cannot get identical weather patterns or waves or tides or whatever, but... You can bring a boat out in the water and see how difficult it is to dump. Right. 150. You take it in a pool and try to dump the 150 pounds off of it. You know what I mean? But but what's going to make sense is putting the boat on land in the driveway out back and let's see how stable it is. And they didn't even have the 150 pound thing, anything no, in there. They just, just they just stood in there and moved back and forth. Getting in the boat, standing there and wiggling around yeah. in the boat to see how sturdy it was on land. The other thing was a tracking dog. Oh, boy. <laughs> the oh, happiest so dog in the cute. world. <laughs> Mom and I were laughing so hard when we were talking about this. So apparently this dog follows Lacey's scent out onto the dock at the marina where Scott claimed to have launched his boat. Mm-hmm. First things first. Scott gave them this piece of evidence for yep. the dog to use. So Scott's scent is on it this evidence (laughs) let's just put that out there the defense tried to claim in cross-examination that this dog use had also failed her certification tests (laughs) oh such a cute thing but we're gonna have to post a picture of this dog because it failed certification tests it was wrong 75 percent of the time (laughs) but oh my gosh every picture of this dog looks so happy she's so proud of what she's doing she's so happy for 75 percent wrong it's like me taking annie out there or obi oh my gosh obi exactly just the happiest just as happy as could be but not worth anything but they brought this as evidence to trial and there was even jurors that were interviewed on that documentary you watched that said oh that dog sealed the deal for me if you guys remember from the Gina Hall case, I believe that was episodes 46 and 47. You know, that dog was that blue. Spot away. on. Spot, Spot on. on. And, you know, had not, all this evidence, but it was not, not able allowed. to be used in trial because it's, it's not, not scientific. It's not scientific evidence. But here's this dog, 75 percent wrong. And we're going <laughs> to use this as scientific evidence. But boy, is this dog happy. I just I <laughs> so cannot. Cute. So cute. <laughs> Okay, and we mentioned the tidal movement in the water. (sighs) I just don't know about this one. It was a big thing, though. Oh, it was. They claim that this tidal movement is what caused Lacey's torso to break away from the anchors and tear away her limbs, as well as Connor technically being born or Mm -hmm. coming out. Um, The hydrologist that was called in claimed that from his readings where Scott said he was out fishing that day, was the exact place and the only place the body could have been thrown from. Yeah. 
basically because where the bodies were found, his testimony was that she had to have been dumped exactly in that specific fishing area. I don't know. Well, let's just bring out here that, yeah, he was a hydrologist or whatever you said, but he really was not. He specialized in other things. Yeah, like he, he didn't. He, this was not his forte. No. Is to, he was guessing, basically. But it fit the prosecution storyline. Yeah, it did. Another thing the prosecution had brought in was an OBGYN. He came in and used a specific formula and measured certain bones. And from that, he could give a date to how far along or how old Connor was, how many weeks Connor Mm -hmm. was. And then this would show when he died. And after doing the formula, he came to the conclusion that Connor died on or around December 24th. Now, we'll come back to this little tidbit of information, but that's another thing that was brought into trial. Mm -hmm. So something that bothers me about the case was that all of those 21 to 24, 30 witnesses that saw Lacey walking McKenzie were never brought in as witnesses. And again, we covered that with the timestamp on the receipt from Karen, the neighbor. Mm-hmm. That gave them a legit time frame, I guess. Prosecution wins this argument because Karen basically so all those other sightings have no proof and defense said that because they had no proof or receipts with these witnesses that's why they didn't bring them in but it's like oh, just try it I, I what's it gonna hurt what's it gonna hurt maybe it adds on a couple days or two of a trial but what's it gonna hurt I don't know November 1st was closing arguments. Prosecution stated, look at this guy. He hated his life. He hated his wife. He didn't want a baby. This man is a murderer. But they had no evidence to back any of this up. They just worked on the jurors' emotions. November 2nd, the defense closing arguments, honestly, they fell flat. They called out the prosecution for not having any evidence to support their theory, but they didn't back anything up either. Yeah. Their closing arguments really stunk. There was no... They started with Martha Stewart and ended with bleh. (laughs) The jury deliberated for 10 days, during which they lost two more jury. One Googled the case when she went home one night. She forgot a fact, I guess, and so she Googled it. that's right. They should have been sequestered. She got kicked out. And the other got into a really heated argument with other jury members. Mm -hmm. And he was actually the foreman. And so he quit. He was scared. He was threatened. He was pretty. I mean, he was on the side of Scott that he was innocent. And there was a jury member that turned on him Mm -hmm. and just made him fearful of his life. And so he he quit. Well, and then think about it. So the the first guy who got kicked off, Mm -hmm. who believed Scott was innocent, you know, he he went on the media and said that, you know, I was kicked off the jury, but I think Scott was innocent. What the media is reporting is nothing like what's actually going on in the trial. He got death threats. Yep. It's crazy. So these other jury members are hearing this. So they're like, if we say that Scott is innocent. What's going to happen to us? Mm-hmm. We say he's guilty and we're going to be celebrities. We're heroes. Right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. We should always do what's right. We've learned that in many episodes. Right. <laughs> so as you've guessed, after 10 days of deliberating, the jury came back with a verdict of guilty. I have to point something out. Scott's quote on this moment when they called guilty was, quote, it was just like this amazing horrible physical reaction that I had. Everything just went kind of silent or I couldn't hear anything. I guess that static would be the way to describe it in my ears. 
I couldn't feel anything. I couldn't feel my feet on the floor. I couldn't feel the chair I was sitting in. My vision was even a little blurry and I just had this weird sensation that I was falling forward and forward and down and there would be no end to this falling forward and down like there was no floor to land on. And this was with his sister on the phone. Now, I know there's a long quote and I'm sorry, but hearing that, that that's how he was feeling, basically having a panic attack, but then watching Scott as they read guilty, you would think he had no emotion to be. No, no, no. Because again, he just had that weird smirky face and he just sat there. But then on the phone with his sister, he is feeling many emotions. And, and I'm not, again, I, I'm not saying he's a good guy and he's not somebody that wears his emotions. We've said that. He, you just see him acting so stoic and numb, but he, he was feeling things. I mean, he was really, I think he really did love Lacey. I'm not saying they had the best relationship by any means, but I guess my point is, is that he's having all these feelings, but we never saw any of that no, ever. No. At any time. The media and the crowd of people outside go crazy as it's announced he is sickening. guilty. It was sickening. It was disgusting. And what was even more disgusting, and I cried like a baby, is when Jackie Peterson, Scott's mom, comes walking out and you hear somebody yell at her, I hope they fry your son. Oh, they were saying horrible things to oh, her. Oh my and gosh, you know what? I they lost it. It was her and the daughters and the husband. They treated it with so much grace. She, first of all, has they, an oxygen tank. They held their heads up high and they just Put walked. their sunglasses on. They and had just to walked. walk. They had through the crowd. Really? There was <sighs> no other way for them to get to Every the day. car? That's BS. It was I think they were made to walk right in front just as a taunt to them. It was gut-wrenching. On the 13th of December, Scott Peterson, to the pleasure of Lacey's family was sentenced to penalty of death by lethal injection. Lacey's family was very happy with this. I mm -hmm. mean, they want justice for Lacey. Sure. Of course. Again, I'm not victim nothing. We're not attacking anybody on this. I don't know how I would act. You want answers. You want justice. And, and you supposedly want they got it. And supposedly yeah. they got it. Okay, now before you and I get into our little debate on theories here, here's some extra evidence that was not, sh not, not, not shown in trial, but was found by private investigators and others searching after the investigation, mm -hmm. done still by Scott Peterson's team. So this isn't just some random PIs out there searching. Uh, we'll talk about that burglary. Burglary, yes. The neighbor saw them on the 24th of December. She told police... After Christmas sometime about seeing the men with the white van. Mm -hmm. Now, those men were arrested. Now, mom and I discussed this. The police paperwork and the, the witness witness herself on the documentary claimed that the men were of dark skinned. Mm -hmm. The two men arrested. Remember, she said there was three. The two men arrested were these white old guys. <laughs> totally. So I, that made no sense. Here's the kicker. They go and arrest these guys. Not talk to you. These men are not talk to you about anything. They just go and arrest you. You're under arrest for the robbery of da 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 da. Quote, I had nothing to do with that pregnant girl. Unquote. Yep. First thing they said. What? Then police come out in a press conference and they say the robbery had no ties to Lacey Peterson because the robbery happened on December 26th. But wasn't that Rollins guy, that media guy? He was out he there. He was there. And he said on the documentary, there, were n there was no robbery going on. I was there. There was no white van. It was I was he there. He was there since 5 a.m. And he's like, if they would have been there, I would have wanted to interview him because I wanted a story. <laughs> 
But this lady had driven by in the middle of the day and saw them there. Mm -hmm. There were reports from other neighbors saying that these guys came and had left the safe on the front yard (laughs) while they went inside for more stuff. But the police are saying it happened on the 26th, which gave no ties to Lacey Peterson. Right. Now, was this because it didn't fit their storyline? I don't know, because that made absolutely no sense. Here's another thing from that. Bizarre thing from that. Lieutenant Aponte, who worked in a California prison, Mm -hmm. he reported a monitored phone call between an inmate and his brother who lived in Modesto. The brother told the inmate that Lacey had confronted the burglars who were robbing the house across the street from where she lived. Yep. The conversation between these two brothers was recorded. Yep. But not only was there no follow-up, the tape has been lost. Not only did she confront them, but the men threatened her. And the brother said, ah, stop, stop. We're probably being recorded. We're not going to talk about that. Yep. Yep. I do have to say that Lacey might have been just adorable with her little dimples and stuff, but that woman had some spirit in she her. She had some gumption. Yeah. If she saw something that was wrong, she was going to, she was going to confront it. Absolutely. She was not scared of anything. I believe that if she saw it, she would have gone and asked what was going on. But this again, mom, this shows that police had blinders on for Scott. And they made it fit. But why weren't they dark-skinned men that were arrested? <laughs> you don't know. <laughs> she saw three. There was two arrested. There was two arrested. Don't know Total what Total different to ethnicities. I don't, I just, none of it makes sense. No, no, it really doesn't. And something to make note of, too, is the location of Modesto. A lot of the documentaries that mom and I watched or articles we read, they list it as this farming community. Um, It's that old school classic town. George Lucas was actually born and raised there. They never locked their doors. Yeah, he based his famous movie, American Graffiti, Mm -hmm. about Modesto. The town's saying or motto was, is water, wealth, contentment, health. There's a high school teacher that was interviewed, (laughs) and he said his students actually say the motto is murder, meth, and auto theft. Yeah. Yeah, a little, you drive down one of the main roads in Modesto, apparently I've never been, okay, but. Apparently? (laughs) No, you really haven't Wow, (laughs) sorry. I have never been. But apparently you drive, if I can get my words right, you drive down one of these main roads, you take a left and you go into Lacey and Scott's. It's like one, Very nice one of the nicer neighborhoods in Modesto. But if you go down right that across road the street. and you take a right, yeah, it's called the airport district. Yeah. And it's shootings, drug deals, murder, theft. It's a little rougher. We're talking about a dirt, dirt roads. It's like yeah. it's not even paved. But it, it's it, like... A little over a mile from the Petersons' home. Yeah. And actually, there had been a number of pregnant women that had gone missing or found dead in the area. Yes. I read as many as 10. And so it could possibly be a serial killer. But I do want to say that there was another witness who said that they were driving on the highway and they saw what looked like a van pulled over and two men walking a pregnant woman to the side of the so road she could urinate. to pee. I yeah. remember that. Yep. That witness was never talked to. Interesting. Uh, then people, of course, brought satanic worshipers into it. Okay. Now, I'm not, th- I don't know how to proceed with this because I don't want to be, there's a lot of drug use 
and somebody high on meth or whatever, what might have you, I don't know a lot about drugs, might think, oh, there's a demon in that or that person is pregnant with a demon. But if they are on drugs, that's a theory that, well, it was never looked into by police. (laughs) It's a pet theory. Golly. Now, I know people laugh at the satanic worshipers. Really? We're going to bring those in again. But there were actually but satanic worshipping going on around that Not area. Not just drug satanic worshipers. No, there was real. Yeah. There was. And I'm going to throw this out there. Seven months before Lacey's disappearance, 24-year-old Evelyn Hernandez, who had a five-year-old son, Alexis, and was eight and a half months pregnant, disappeared from the San Francisco area. She and Alexis were last seen at his school on May 1st. In July, a decomposed torso, dressed in maternity clothes, washed up beneath the Bay Bridge. It was Evelyn's remains. Her five-year-old son has still not been found. And just a torso. Same thing. Exactly the same thing. There's no coincidences. There's no coincidences in crime. There's no coincidence that there was a burglary, burglary, robbery happening right across the street from Lacey's house. On the same day, if not around the same day, whatever you want to believe, that Lacey goes missing. Yep. Now, unfortunately, Evelyn's case got very little media coverage. Uh, In fact, just four short stories in the San Francisco Chronicle, which by its own omission, published no less than 32 stories about Lacey from the time of her disappearance and Scott's arrest, Mm. four of those even making the front page. So that just tells you how big Lacey's case was because of media attention. Yeah. Evelyn just kind of got little side stories but her case was her case was the same thing it was it was same now she was found you know before Lacey disappeared so was it a copycat type thing did somebody learn sure you know I mean I but these are all so many different avenues that I'm did the police even look at I don't think so and like I said I think there were like 10 pregnant ladies that have disappeared around that area. Mm. And the, during this, and you know, I, I don't mean exactly at the same time as Lacey, but, you know, within a two-year, three-year period of time. And all are pregnant. Yeah. that Very pregnant. Like, noticeably pregnant. Yeah. I don't know. So... There is an appeal yes. process right now. Actually, in August of 2020, Scott Peterson's death penalty was overturned and they claimed that he would face a new penalty trial for his conviction. In October of 2020, the California Supreme Court ruled that the lower court should take a second look at his case should the guilty verdict be overturned. Then in June 2021... According to People.com, they decided to do away with the new penalty trial and sentence him to life without possibility of parole. Mm-hmm. Um, Lacey's family believes he's guilty and his death should be the outcome of his crime. But going back to trial would just be too painful for them. So here are the things. I read the appeal. It's out there. Now, they had 60 days, I think, to turn over all this information to the court. It should be out. I would. I don't know how long the courts are going to take to look over all this to issue him another trial. I can imagine. I cannot imagine a judge looking at this and saying, "Nope, it was done. Fair you trial. are guilty. There is no evidence to anything. He did not have a fair trial. I am not a 
prosecutor, defense attorney, anything. But I even know this was not a fair trial. No. This is ridiculous. According to the information I read, what the appeal is claiming is there's a few things. So one, the expert eyewitness was applying the wrong formula so that OBGYN mm-hmm. was applying the wrong formula to the wrong bones. The length of Connor's leg bone with proper formula indicated that Lacey Peterson was alive until at least January 3rd. Mm. This makes Scott innocent for sure, mom, I believe. Again, could somebody have taken Lacey and had her? Then, like we stated, two days later, they're putting Scott's alibi out there for all to see. So let's just toss the body there. Mm. I, I just... I don't know. The sighting of a woman urinating on the side of the road being held up by two men. That's weird. Even if it wasn't Lacey. Like, right. In a van. Yeah. That's. Uh, the other thing, the appeal issues is a, a dog handler incorrectly misinterpreted the canine's position and gait <laughs> when the handler said the dog alerted to ascent. And again, this dog is not science. <laughs> she happy girl. <laughs> She's not science. Failed her. Uh, the other thing is a hydrologist testimony was, quote, fundamentally flawed. Yep. There were two places, apparently, where the body could have possibly been dumped in relevance to where the bodies were found. found right. Basically, the appeal is also saying that police told each of the expert witnesses their theory, and the witnesses found evidence to match that theory. Mm. I mean, that detective left information out of his notes just to prove Scott was guilty. Ridiculous. Uh, another big thing, which we didn't really get into because I honestly could not stand this woman and I don't want, that was me personally and I'm sorry, I don't know her personally, but uh, she drove me up the wall. We didn't really get into it, but there was jury misconduct. <laughs> One of the jury members, she was just awful. She was a new jury member, by the way, that they she had was brought, just brought on in. while they were in that 10 days talking about. I think she was brought in the last day, the last day or two. Yeah. <sighs> she did some press conference right after court and she was like, she called Scott an asshole. He deserves it. Like just going crazy. Yeah. But she filed on the paperwork to become a juror. She had never been in court for any reason. But in reality, a year prior or something like that, not long beforehand, she had been. She was pregnant and had filed a restraining order on the father's new girlfriend to, quote, protect herself and her unborn baby. Hmm. Remember that word stealth jury that I talked about oh, before? Totally That's who she was. That. Yeah, she, she was to be a liar to be on there to mm-hmm. get Scott because it was similar, maybe similar to her thing that she went through. I, I don't know. I don't know. But she, she was drove after. me crazy. She was after Scott. Well, she's another reason the appeal is going, hopefully going through. Uh, the other big thing was none of the witnesses were called who saw Lacey walking the dog, mm-hmm. like mom and I talked about. And then the big one. The big one. And this is the one I think that makes me go, hmm. Is a handwritten note from the mailman. Yep. So during investigation into the trial, when they're going through all the discovery, the prosecution and the police feed all this paperwork into a scanner that makes copies for the courts, the system, for the defense. Sometimes two papers stick together. Going through a scanner, it's just going to happen. And in this case, a handwritten note didn't slip through the scanner. But it was found when Scott's sisters were going through all the paperwork by hand. I mean, mm-hmm. thousands and thousands oh my gosh. of papers. Thousands. 
It's amazing. They're going through it all by hand and they find this handwritten note from the Peterson's mailman. He had come to the house to deliver a package on December 24th between 1035 and 1050. That's when he was en route to their street. Now, this is a specific time because he had to mark it in his system. Mm -hmm. So here's a receipt. Here it is. He went to their house between 1035 and 1050. So just like Karen, he has a receipt. So like any mailman, he knew the Petersons have a dog. Mm -hmm. (laughs) My poor mailman, delivery men get barked at all the time. And this mailman was no different. He knew McKinsey and McKinsey did not like him at all and when he always barked and he would always bark at the mailman no matter where the dog was in the house Mm -hmm. in the backyard anywhere the dog would always bark at the mailman that day there was no barking yeah another thing the mailman noticed was the back gate was open yep scott came home and found the dog out back with the leash on him this is huge evidence to me and the defense agrees with beth because (laughs) This proves that those 21, 24, or whatever number you want to go with, screw it, even if it was 10. Really saw her. That saw her walking, they really saw her. It all lines up now. He delivers the package, no barking, because she's out on her walk at that time. Mm -hmm. So here's my theory. You ready for my theory, Mom? Yeah. Lacey was about to walk Mackenzie, and maybe she had to use the bathroom. Maybe she forgot something inside. Something. And she left the dog wandering the front yard while she went in to do whatever she needed to do. Right. Karen, being a Karen, sees this dog wandering. No offense to those. And doesn't Karen. want the dog to be hurt. No. So. And, you know, it's looking around, doesn't see anything. So she's like, I'm going to put the dog back in the backyard. Puts the dog in the backyard. Lacey comes out from doing whatever she was doing. Gets her dog from out in the backyard and they go for their walk. While gone, the package gets delivered. People see her walking because she's walking. <laughs> when she gets back home. She sees the suspicious men in the van with the safe. Maybe she sees the safe. Maybe she sees just suspicious men. So she throws the dog in the backyard. And closes the door. And closes she knows the gate. McKenzie would have barked at these guys. At these and- guys. Exactly. Which, mm, I don't know. If I'm going up to suspicious men, I'd probably bring my big dog. But if I really want to talk to people, maybe I don't want to no, talk over barking. Bring it, yeah. Anyway, she throws the dog in the back. And like mom said, her friends and family say with her personality, she would go over there and say something. And I think she did. I think she went over to the guys robbing the neighbor's house and confronted them. And this is backed up by the evidence that Lieutenant Aponte had mm-hmm. on the phone call with the inmate. Mm-hmm. And, and the tape that was lost. Yes. And he, they said that he threatened her. And I think something happened. Maybe they took her. I don't... I don't, I, again, that's there as far no as answers. I kind of got. no answers But I think that. that makes a much more sense of a timeline because people saw her. And you're not going to have 20 people making up seeing a woman walking a dog. Right. Why would they? I think they took her. I think they had her. They got his alibi. They knew where to dump her. If it had to do with satanic stuff, I don't even know if it has to be that sadistic. I think they wanted to get rid of her because she was causing problems. She they, saw she could them. Identify them. She identified them. Mm-hmm. She talked to them. But again, they're kind of ding-dongs for trying to rob a place in the middle of the day. It had to have been around 11 o'clock in the afternoon. (laughs) Yeah, that's... I don't know. I just don't think that there's anything that proves Scott's guilty. Nothing. Okay, I have to agree with you there. There's really nothing that proves... Except he's a jerk. But there's nothing that proves that he's guilty on this at all. The mailman was what really yeah. changed my mind. Not completely. I'm still like, I don't know, but I'm definitely not convinced that Scott did it. 
any longer and that mailman is my big that really throws the yeah. case off oh yeah oh yeah yeah it, everything makes much more sense like you said with that timeline it does the fact of the matter is that they never went in investigating the disappearance of Lacey peterson mm-hmm. they went in to investigate scott's guilt yeah period he deserves this appeal to go through he deserves a retrial It's going to be another media circus. Why wouldn't it be? Sure. But he didn't have a fair trial. No. So all the way around, I think this was an extremely sad case. There really is no justice for Lacey and Connor. And Scott could possibly have just spent 12 years, 12 or 15 now, whatever, in jail for being innocent. It's just all the way around. The family members are all on both sides. It's just awful. But... There is one good thing, if I can say that, that has come out of this. On April 1st, 2004, President Bush signed legislation that recognized fetuses as separate victims during violent crimes against pregnant women. I cannot believe that it was 2004. That's crazy. That it took that long to sign this, but it's called the Unborn Victims of Violence Act. And it had been stalled for several years and advocates credit the Peterson case with getting the momentum of the bill started again. It is also referred to as the Lacey and Connor Law. To this day, if a baby, a fetus, is killed during a violent act against the woman that's carrying... The murderer will be charged uh, with both Yes. Or if she wasn't killed but the fetus or baby was, he will be charged. Wow. Because of that legislation. And then I always... I know you... There's all these horrible stuff going on, and I'm always worried about the dang animals. I know, Mackenzie. <laughs> so poor I, thing, still wandering around with his with his leash on. I I did look into it. Okay. okay, Mackenzie was adopted by one of Scott's family members. Oh, so he found a good home. I didn't know this, but Scott and Lacey also had two adult Siamese mixed cats. Mm. One was named Siam, and the other Gracie. Uh, those two were adopted by a friend of Lacey's. So all the animals found Happy a good home. Happy ending for the animals. Otherwise, just a horrible oh, all around. story all the way around. So, yeah. What do you guys think? Yeah, let us know what you think. We just made a two-hour episode, and I bet we missed several things. I'm sure we did. <laughs> so... Keep a watch out because that's coming oh, that'll, up. Oh, that'll, I'm sure it will. It's happening within the next couple of months, I'm sure. I would assume. Oh. I can't see that process taking too long to give them a trial date. But meanwhile, friends, join us on Patreon if you... we're out until November 1st. Want to, and I've got some really fun ideas coming up. I've had a yes yesterday on one of my ideas, so I'm really excited to implement that. Then we will be back the 1st of November. That's right. If I survive three kids for the next two months. <laughs> you got this. We'll be having a drink together November 1st. <laughs> uh, resources for this episode will be on our website. A link for a Patreon is on our website. You can even send us a message on our website. It's killerhangoverpodcast.com. There's also links to our website, our Patreon, in the description of this episode. You can also email us if you're having trouble with any of the links, need help with anything, or send us your theories, your ideas. Did we miss something? Did you know? Do you know something? Do you know something? Email us. 
killerhangoverpodcast at gmail.com. And November 1st is around the corner. So if you have recommendations or you've requests for beverages, stories for us to start researching for recording for November 1st, send them to Can us. you tell she hasn't drank anything for a while? She puts beverages first. <laughs> My stepdad bought me this awesome beer. It's called Worth the Wait. And I am... <laughs> made by boulevard here in kansas city and i am so excited for that it's been sitting in my garage refrigerator he's like oh well somebody could drink it you know you we don't have to save it and i was like what are you talking about we are saving this that. is mine it's be worth the wait and it is all mine all right friends well you're not gonna miss us if you join patreon but we'll see you november 1st otherwise this was a interesting one mom definitely very, very interesting. All right. Cheers, Mama. Cheers. Love you, kid. <laughs>